0: This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a TrekFM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash
1: trekfm. That's patreo dot com trekfm. Hey
0: everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM.
1: these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored welcome everyone to another episode of literary treks trek fm's dedicated star trek books and comics podcast i'm one of your hosts dan gunther and joining me is the wonderful bruce gibson bruce how are you tonight
0: i'm doing great i'm so glad to be here because i want to talk about star trek books and comics with you dan Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) And you know what? There's an empty
1: seat, and it's making me sad that Matt's not here anymore. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Longtime listeners will definitely notice there is a missing voice. And, of course, Matthew Rushing is no longer a regular on the show, uh, but he will be joining us from time to time in the future. So have no fear. If you miss the dulcet tones of Mr. Rushing, you will be able to hear those again soon.
0: I can't wait for him to sing one more time for us
1: uh we're gonna be begging for it by the time he's back and dan i'm (laughs) expecting you to sing at some point too uh it it's been known to happen but very rarely so uh yeah (laughs) (laughs) well on that note see what i did there Uh, (laughs) (laughs) we've got a, a few news topics uh this week to take a look at a couple new comic books have just been released uh first was released just before the new year and it's the first issue of the second series of Green Lantern comics and this series is called Stranger Worlds number 1 Uh Bruce um what did you think of this one
0: Well here's the thing I still haven't read the first series of Star Trek and Green Lantern crossovers And I was thinking of doing it before I read this, and then I saw that it's coming out as a trade paperback in April. And I thought, hmm, I would really like the trade paperback, but I kind of want to read it now. And then it dawned on me, you know what, I know, Dan, that you read the first series of these uh, Green Lantern crossovers, the first six issues of the series, and... I thought from your perspective, you can relate these issues to that. And then I can come in and see if this holds up without reading those
1: issues. That's, yeah. And and I mean, the one thing this comic does also do is provide a pretty good quick little recap of the events of that first series. Very briefly, but, you know, not not too bad. Uh, The one thing I am relying on you for this one, though, too, is uh, familiarity with Green Lantern because the entirety of that I know about anything to do with Green Lantern all comes from that first Star Trek crossover series. So I I know nothing about him, really. So you hadn't even seen the movie that came out a few years ago. No, actually, I didn't. It was always on my list. And then I read some reviews and heard some friends' opinions and then never saw it. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, I don't, I'm not a big Green Lantern historian. <laughs> uh, and just to let you know my extent of Green Lantern, I was always a huge uh, Superman fan. So I collected a lot of Superman comic books, including Justice League. And of course I got to know Green Lantern a lot through the Justice League, but I never really bought his own title. So I don't have a deep knowledge of Green Lantern. I have more of a Justice League Green Lantern familiarity, but I do, I am somewhat familiar to keep up with
1: who some of these characters are. Okay. Right on. Well, um, yeah, as far as this issue goes, it's it's kind of one of those things that uh to me anyway, you know, there's not a whole lot to talk about. It's kind of reintroducing the idea again and kind of setting the stage for where all of these characters are in the universe. Uh and setting some interesting things up. It seems that the uh the lanterns <laughs> were in I I don't know what they're called. The Green Lanterns. The Core of... I don't remember. Core. That's that's the the word I was looking for. (laughs) (laughs) Those guys. Um, Apparently, their rings are all kind of weakening and uh, cutting out at very inopportune moments, such as uh, demonstrations in front of a group of eager cadets and uh, during big battles. So... Some interesting things going on there. We're not sure why that is. possibly uh, they, they think it might be because they need to be recharged. Um, again, lack of familiarity on Well my yeah, part of- so
0: what they do is they have these lanterns, hence green lanterns. so they have these lanterns that they put their rings into to recharge them after a while. Just oh, like if okay. you're going to take your mobile phone and charge it, you know, overnight or whatever, they have to charge the ring. So they don't have their lanterns with them when they moved from one universe to the Star Trek universe.
1: Oh, okay. That makes sense. And and that tells me where the lantern part comes in because I kind of wondered that.
0: Cool. Yes. It's not just about the emblem on their shirts. <laughs> ah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's why, which I really liked. And like you said, there's a bit of a summary to set up what happened in the previous issues. Like I said, that I didn't read in the first mini So knowing that the lanterns, uh, now I'm calling them the lanterns, <laughs> but the core, <laughs> well, the, the they're from was being destroyed. And then, so they were brought into the star Trek universe. And so now they've got their rings, but they're losing power. So that makes a lot of sense to me as a reader
1: of this. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Um, Yeah, so this one seems to be a lot more focused, I think, on the core than on the Star Trek side of things, uh, at least compared to the first series of books as far as I remember. So uh, this is me basically just learning about these guys again. So I'm, I'm curious to see where the series goes. Again, lots of setup, not a lot of kind of revelation of what's going on yet. So kind of holding holding off to see uh, where this story goes.
0: And I've said it before, and you'll hear me say it again, I'm not really that big into crossovers uh, with other franchises. Uh, but, you know, looking at this as a crossover with Green Lantern, and what, you know, I do know of Green Lantern this is a good introduction to a story. I'm actually interested to see what happens in this. I find it interesting that they have lost powers and and that they're helping Starfleet. And by the way, this takes place in the Kelvin universe. So we're seeing the Kelvin universe uh, enterprise uh, through this. So it feels mm-hmm. very modern. It feels very much like a mix of what we've seen in the movies and the previous comics blended in with a DC comic. So it's kind of cool in a lot of ways to see how jordan and a lot of these other green lantern characters throughout this issue.
1: Yeah, definitely. I'm I'm eager for when you get a chance to read the first series cuz I'm curious as to your thoughts on that cuz uh speaking as someone who again doesn't know anything about green green lantern, I really enjoyed that story. So, curious to see what you think about that.
0: Yeah, that one's coming out like I said
1: in April, so I'm going to be reading that halfway through this series. Perfect. Uh, Well, we do have another comic that just came out. Uh, This one is the next Boldly Go comic, issue number four, wrapping up the current uh, arc that's going on in that series. So (laughs) before we get to uh, my thoughts on this one, Bruce, what did you think of this? Well, I love the way you laughed. (laughs) I think that's a
0: bit telling. Um, I'm a little mixed on it. Uh, just seeing Spock as the cutest in a sense, not that he is the cutest, but he's getting Borgified in this issue, um, or assimilated of course. But, um, there's some issues with assimilating Spock because he's half human, half Vulcan. And I, it, it kind of makes sense that he's the borg are trying to adapt him based on his logical side but he can counterbalance that with his emotions and it seems that in a in a way it confuses the borg as they're assimilating him they just don't know how to get to into his mind to assimilate him in the right way that he's able to then go from logic to emotion to kind of break the link and bust out from the borg assimilating him is did did i get
1: that right i i think that's what they're kind of trying to put across uh i'm gonna be blunt i don't buy it i think (laughs) (laughs) i i think spock's ability to resist being assimilated and just uh i i don't know i i think it was to me personally just kind of a bit of a cheap out to get around him being assimilated uh I don't know. I I have to admit, I did not enjoy this one. Uh, I thought it wrapped things up just a little too conveniently, a little too quickly. Um, you know, the Borg, they've already been so watered down by this point in the Star Trek universe that this just makes them totally impotent by the end here. And uh, I don't know. It's frustrating. It did because... feel too easy, didn't it? Yeah, Definitely uh it, it it just feels like everything falls apart for them and i guess they can defeat the borg now <laughs> i just uh man
0: i it, i think this would work better if they continued uh building the story for f- a few more issues where the borg are harder to defeat than just uh show up and defeat them in one issue
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh and then maybe I'd like to see more about the Borg trying to find the Narada and deal with the Romulans and just try to figure out what the Borg is, what they see the Borg trying to accomplish something than just showing up and attacking and then being blown up. But yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's hinted at that, you know, the Borg may return. So I'm hoping we get something like,
1: this is just kind of like a piece to a larger story that's going to come later. Maybe. I don't know. I I wouldn't be too sad if they never showed up in the Kelvin timeline again. But, I I mean, I guess they're there, and the Borg are aware of them. So, like Picard says at the end of Q-Who, they'll be coming. (laughs) That's true, number one.
0: I think think the thing I would really like to get out of this is there's something about about the Narada that we don't know about. Mm -hmm. And that's why the Borg is searching for it. It's not just that the Narada was built with some Borg technology, but maybe there's a secret technology involved that they are looking to protect. or There's just something in there that they're really determined to find. And that we're not aware of and Starfleet's not aware of. And so I'm just looking for some, a, uh, a surprise element and go, aha, had no idea that the Narada had that. No wonder the Borg is after them. Like, that's the kind of
1: thing I hope we get from future stories. That makes sense. and And I think that's sort of the thing that I was waiting for the whole time. And then with them just kind of blowing them up, it just, yeah, it just kind of fizzled out for me. <laughs> So yeah, from, from your mouth to IDW's ears, like I'd, I'd be on board if there was a deeper layer to it like that for sure.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, there's more issues coming, so we'll, we'll just have to wait and see.
1: Absolutely. Well, we also got a sneak preview of the cover for Boldly Go number five. Uh, Now this one, just based on the cover, I'm excited about, I was a huge fan of Jayla in Beyond. And this cover looks really cool. I really love Jayla's look here.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to see this because when it comes to movies, I like to see characters introduced in the movies continue on in printed form. And so it's great that Jayla is not just a thing in Beyond, and that's the last we see of her, that we're actually going to develop her character and integrate her with the crew in some manner in these comics. And maybe it's... Her, we see her going off to Starfleet Academy or maybe she's visiting the crew for whatever reason. I don't know. I don't know what the story's about. But to have her on the cover is very promising.
1: And finally, one last little bit of news that I just stumbled across today. Uh, last year, of course, we had Star Trek as a whole, its 50th anniversary. But this month, January 2016, actually marks Treklit's 50th anniversary because James Blish's Star Trek Number 1, First came out in January of 1967, apparently. So how cool is that? 50 years of Star Trek books.
0: Wow, I didn't even realize that. That is so cool.
1: Yeah, I just, uh, I stumbled across that. Um, I should give credit to the user who pointed me to that, but I don't remember. It was on the Trek BBS. uh, And yeah, somebody pointed out that it was 50 years ago this month that we got our first Star Trek print That is awesome. And so
0: I okay, so I have to admit when the 25th anniversary came out, they came out with the reprint of the James Blish stories in three volume paperback set. And I debated back and forth if I was going to get those or not. Should I shouldn't I because I was kind of like, well, there's so much Star Trek to read. I already know those stories from the episodes, but it would be kind of cool to have them. And I didn't get them, and I always regretted it. And now for the 50th anniversary, there was a volume of all the stories at Barnes & Noble, one big
1: hardcover, and I bought that. And I've already
0: started reading some of it. So that's pretty cool that it's been 50 years.
1: Yeah, definitely pretty cool. Uh, Okay, so I I did quickly find it on the Trek BBS. Uh, Somebody with the very catchy name of Ryan123450 actually pointed that out uh, on the Trek BBS and, uh, yeah, so that's, that's pretty cool. I do remember those 25th anniversary volumes and I think that might've been some of the first Star Trek in print that I actually ever did read, uh, because I remember our local library, uh, carried a bunch of them. And I remember that, that 25th anniversary logo on the front and flipping through and thinking, wait a minute, this is an episode and, oh, that's what these books are about. Very cool. Yeah. So, happy 50th anniversary to Star Trek books.
0: Yeah, I I mean, this is like an anniversary
1: show. This is our 50th. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's exciting. Awesome. Well, what better way to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Star Trek books by listening to past episodes of Literary Treks and subscribing if you haven't already? You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, we're of course on iTunes. While you're there, be sure to hit that subscribe button and leave us a star rating and review. This really helps us rise in the search results on iTunes and makes it possible for more Star Trek book fans to find us. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find the shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link there as well. If you'd like to get into contact with us, we have a form on the website at trek.fm slash contact. You can leave us a voicemail there as well. Just look in the sidebar on the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm. We're on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. While you're on Facebook, we also have the Babel Conference. Just type the Babel Conference, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook or go to our website at trek.fm and click discussion on the menu bar. Now, Bruce, what's another great way that you can connect with literary treks specifically?
0: Well, you can go to Goodreads. And uh, Goodreads is a website where people discuss books. And of course, we have a group in there so we can discuss Star Trek books. So if you go to Goodreads and search for literary treks, then you can, I guess, register or whatever. You click to join and we get an email to approve you to get in the group. And in that forum you can discuss Star Trek books about what we discuss on the show or just any Star Trek book that you're reading and discuss it with other Star Trek book fans.
1: Awesome. Well, what do you say we get to the feature and start talking about this week's novel?
0: I'm looking very forward to
1: it. Well, this week we've got a brand new TOS novel to talk about, Christopher L. Bennett's The Face of the Unknown, the uh, January novel for 2017, kicking off the new year in Star Trek literature. Now, I love the original series, and I have to say the Corbomite Maneuver is one of my absolute favorite episodes. It's kind of... I can't remember what order I saw the episodes in, but I do remember a very early moment in my life watching this episode and just being transfixed by the Baylock puppet and you know, trying to figure out this weird alien threat. And then, of course, the big surprise at the end that, you know, this is a small diminutive alien who is just testing us and we're going to be friends with them now. You know, a very Star Trek story. And uh, it's really cool that we get a sequel to that story in this one.
0: And it's very odd to me that we've never had a sequel. And as we were talking about, 50 years of Star Trek book publishing, and we've never had a sequel to this episode. And it just amazes me that with all the books out there, that there's still so much to mine. And and this is great. Now, this episode uh, the, of the Coburn, Corbinite Maneuver was never like a big favorite of mine. As a matter of fact, when I was a kid, I remember my dad watching it, and I thought, okay, that's really weird, because that little kid sounds like a man, and that's f- kind of freaky. <laughs> and, and at the end credits, i always see that puppet. And I always thought that guy's kind of scary. And then I found out later he was really a puppet. And I'm like, what, what, what is this show? I'm going back to watch $6 million man, but <laughs> now of course I love it. <laughs> and, uh, and so it's very surprising that we've never had a sequel to
1: that episode. And I was pumped to read this book because of that. Absolutely. Yeah. I. I know they've gotten like a few name drops here and there in, you know, Trek literature, never, ever mentioned again, as far as I know in like Canon Star Trek, I don't think they've ever even been name dropped or anything in deep space nine or, or TNG or anything like that. But, uh, reading the, uh, to this book, it's interesting that, um, Christopher Bennett says that he always wanted to write the definitive book about the first Federation. And I think that's that's definitely uh, something he's really accomplished here. This was a really cool look into that civilization and what they're all about. I, I do remember as a kid hearing the name First Federation and like, oh, what does that mean? Was there like a United Federation of Planets before ours or or like what was that about? And that we finally get some of those answers here and finally get to understand a little bit more about that culture was really exciting.
0: And I remember reading uh, Christopher Bennett mentioning on his uh, blog that the First Federation was briefly dealt with in the mirror universe of the Shatner-verse books. Oh. Uh, and also that it was in uh, the Next Generation novel, uh, Gulliver's Fugitives, which right, I think yeah. was the very first next generation novel I ever read, but I don't, I mean, that was such a long time ago. I don't even remember, but again, I don't think they were like huge, huge folk folk no. I don't think they were a huge focus. The first Federation was a huge focus in those books. So this is truly as Chris wants to do, make this the definitive book
1: for the first Federation. Mm-hmm. So kind of the first big surprise we get in this book is, uh, you know, you understand from the Corbomite maneuver that, the Baylock puppet is just, um, just that a puppet that's designed to look scary and intimidating, but doesn't actually represent a real person. It's just there to frighten the crew of the enterprise. But in this novel, we learn that they are actually based on an actual race of beings called the Dasik or the Dasik. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Yeah. I was thinking I th- Dasik, but Dasik. Okay. We'll, we'll go with that. Um, And yeah, so these were, uh, this was a race of hunters, uh, that once conquered the the entire galaxy, it almost sounds like, but then for reasons that are kind of unknown at the beginning of the novel anyway, they disappeared from the galactic stage and, uh, kind of survive as cautionary fairy tales in, uh, for Balak's people, the Linic. But by the end of the novel, of course, we learn a lot more about the complicated relationship between them. Um, I was that aspect of the story. What did you kind of think of uh, how that played out? I really like this because when you watch that episode,
0: you think of the puppet as just being that. It's it's a made-up figure, um, and maybe some people thought it was based on a real race, but I never really did. Mm-hmm. And so to find out that. They've almost become a myth to Baylock's people. Uh, stories that, like you mentioned, they they tell their children, and they're fearful stories. They're you know these are like you know the boogeymen of you know their their species. But it's based on this <laughs> real race that had once enslaved them years and years ago, and using mm-hmm. Baylock's people for their intelligence. And but because physically they aren't as big as the Dasik that they were able to turn the tables on the Dasik and basically were, I don't want to get too far into it yet, but you know, they just, they, they conquered them and left. And like you said, the Dasik were kind of gone for, for long periods of time. So I was very encouraged by the fact, like this scary looking puppet that I used to see at the end credits was actually a real race, and that we're actually going to see them in this book and as as a kid, I used to think they were scary, and to find out they were fake, and now that they're real i'm like yes this is this is awesome. I just <laughs> thought this was like like in my mind as these characters are being portrayed in the book, I kept trying to picture them actually looking more physically real, that their mouths mm-hmm. actually move correctly in their eyes and that they're not so mechanical, and I saw them as being you know very kind of tall and dominating and, and, and I just try to picture their voice as being real deep. And I mean, it was just like, so cool. They came to life is what I'm getting at. They came to life for me. And after all these years, it's so nice to see that vision
1: of a, of an alien, scary creature come to life. Definitely. I, I had very much the same experience, you know, trying to picture exactly how they would move and how they would talk and <laughs> I kept putting in Baylock's fake voice for them, especially with uh, the the war leader or the force leader speaking. He's like, we will reign upon them. their doom. <laughs> I was like,
0: yes, this is awesome. You know, if you ever reread the book, give them a different voice. Maybe a really high pitch voice. Maybe they talk like this
1: like, or like Mickey Mouse or you know, whatever. <laughs> that would actually be funny. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, one thing you could definitely tell was I, I think Christopher Bennett had a lot of fun uh writing a lot of their dialogue in particular. And I I, I picture him thinking of that Baylock voice as well, because so many of those phrases that they say and and uh kind of over-the-top villainy um on the part of a few of them anyway, uh it was really, really entertaining to read for sure. And Similarly, I have to say, picturing Baylock walking around and talking to and laughing every third sentence, you just you had to put in that <laughs> <laughs> from the end of the episode because, oh, man, uh, Baylock was just such a funny character. And to imagine him interacting with the crew like he does in this book again was a lot of fun. And
0: he was always obsessed with drinking his, was it Tronla, <laughs> Tranya. Tranya. Tranya,
1: yeah. He's yeah. always like,
0: ah, oh, then if everything blows up, we won't have Tranya to drink. It's like, oh, come on. You're, like, you're, you're a Tronaholic,
1: you know? I think so. I think, yeah, there's a, there's definitely that aspect to him. I always think of him every time he t- took a sip of it in the Corbomite Maneuver that, ah! <laughs> <A> very, <laughs> you know, I just, I, I love this guy. I think. I'd love to be friends with him. He might get a little annoying at times, but I think he's awesome. Well, if you watch
0: the Roddenberry Vault on Blu-ray, uh, Clint Howard, who played that character, is on there and says that, you know, he was actually learned the lines and spoke them and learned out later they were dubbing him with an adult. <laughs> <laughs> so he was yeah. a little disappointed with that. But um, and let me ask you this. Did you watch,
1: have you recently watched the episode while you were reading this book, or right before or after? Oh man, I I didn't really get a chance to. I have seen it fairly recently. I think a couple months ago. But uh, yeah, I would have liked the chance to to read or to watch it right as I was reading this book for sure. Yeah,
0: I re- I watched it uh, maybe a third of the way into the book, and oh nice. I mean, it. I just like the fact that it, you know my perception of the episode changes a little because I know more of the background but i haven't watched it since i've read finished the whole book so it should be
1: interesting to do that Mm -hmm. yeah i'll definitely put that on my list of things to do for sure so another aspect of this book that was i think fairly apparent is there's, there's a very clear environmental message here uh we've got this planet churella which is this gas giant and hidden beneath the clouds of of this world is the web of worlds, which is basically the entirety of the first federation, you know, thousands, was it thousands? It was tons of modules of different habitats yeah. for all these different species and, and different biospheres that support the entire population. And because of the huge size of the planet, you know, this one world is able to host the populations of, you know, what would be the equivalent of hundreds of M-class planets. And it was really interesting, you know, Christopher Bennett's really good at world building, and I think he put a lot of thought and effort into this world in particular, and the threat that it faces. So it uses this complicated technology to hide it from the outside universe, which puts it kind of out of balance with the natural environment around it in the gas giant, which is causing, you know, extra large storms and various things like that that threaten the habitat. Now, the government doesn't really believe that it's a problem. They're kind of in the dark a little bit as to the extent of the danger that they're facing. What? I've never heard of such a thing. Yeah, this is, this is totally new. Like this is an unprecedented, uh, situation that, uh, frankly, I've never, I, I've never encountered before. <laughs>
0: well, yeah, it, uh, definitely jumped out to me as, Hey, this is climate change or global warming. And some people say they believe it. Some people say they don't. And, uh, you know, and that's what Star Trek does. It takes an issue like that and puts it in a different setting and shows, you know, what could possibly happen in our own world if we don't believe in something that scientists say is true. And, you know, politics are involved and studies can be altered. So a lot of people question, especially when government talks, whether something is really true or not, whether, yeah, is the scientific research
1: being presented correctly? And that's kind of what's going on here. Well, it's just a natural fluctuation, of course, and, and everything will kind of work itself out. I mean, you know, these, the, the things they're doing to the environment, they can't possibly have that big an effect on on a system that big. So, no, it, it'll all work out. It'll be fine.
0: Well, and of course we find <laughs> out it doesn't all work out. But, you know... It, <laughs> I mean, this is, of course, you know, we're going to get a little political here, but this is, of course, the author's uh, views in a lot of ways on global warming and uh, that we should listen to the call and what science is saying and that it's not maybe just a natural thing. It's man-made or caused by man. And uh, And maybe it is and maybe it's not. I mean, everybody can have that debate, but in this story, we're finding out that, it is caused by these races of beings because as you're saying, Dan, in explaining this, that they're trying to hide on this planet. And this is like a gas planet. This is something larger than Jupiter. And I think it was like four or five times bigger and can host all of these different races in these worlds. It could be about the size of like half of the United Federation of Planets, which which is mind boggling in itself to even. Th- I had to get my head around that for a while but, mm-hmm. but it's it's really cool to think about that. But they're using that atmosphere to hide themselves so that Dasik or any other race doesn't find them. They're trying to be protected. But after hundreds and thousands of years of just... And, and that's what I'm saying. It was a long period of time of them just kind of taking this atmosphere and manipulating it and creating energy. And then the energy creates heat. And then they have to create another kind of energy to calm down that heat and, and so on and so forth. That at some point something's going to break. And so things start to get a little more violent. But then the government doesn't want to stop it because then they'll be exposed. And so... To avoid that, they tell people, well, you know, this is natural. It's all going to work out. It's all going to be fine. And if that were true, this wouldn't be much of a story. So, of course, it's not all going to be fine. And so that's where our story goes to uh, some destruction that starts to occur.
1: And like any great Star Trek story, you know, things come to a head just when our heroes happen to arrive on the scene.
0: (laughs) Yes. And just like any good story, Kirk tries to help them out and things don't always go well. And then they blame it on him. <laughs> exactly. It's yeah. his fault. We could
1: have survived this if it wasn't the Enterprise and Kirk getting involved. So, yeah, of course, with the story, like you say, Kirk becomes the scapegoat in this when, in fact, in true Starfleet tradition, all, all we were trying to do was help. You know, all these aliens don't understand. We're just trying to help. But uh, I really liked that idea because a lot of times when people are in a situation and, and they're surrounded by it, you can kind of become blind to what's happening around you. And it really sometimes takes that outsider's perspective to really take a look at things and realize what's happening. So Spock, for example, examines the calculations of these dissidents who have, you know, employed these scientists to figure out what's going on. And he looks it over and says, no, this is real. Like this is actually happening. But unfortunately, the uh, member of the First Federation who he's become quite close to, whose name I can't remember at the moment. Uh, um, nissa Nisu Nisu right um Nisu unfortunately is just far too close to the situation and so she believes that it's Spock's emotions that are <laughs> ruling him now we of course we know Spock and we know that that's not the case and in fact it's the emotions of this uh, Nisu person who is really guiding her actions and not letting her see what's actually happening and i thought that was a really interesting tack for the story to take uh, just the idea that Spock would be blind because of his love of his captain and wanting to exonerate him, that he would throw in, throw in with these rebels to spout these lies. And I think it's just perfect that this char- the character of Spock is used that way because as we all know, he wouldn't be influenced that way.
0: No, because yeah, uh, you know, he's not going to make decisions based on emotions. At least in this particular case um true <laughs> <laughs> but uh and it and and that's what's interesting about uh nisu uh, she's chief protector of uh the planet, almost like a security chief of the first federation, and to accuse him of Believing in something because she thinks it may be an emotional response or whatever. I mean, that again, that's very similar to our own society in this world today. I mean, a lot of people do make decisions on emotion, whether the reaction should be true or not to what the facts are. And again, facts can be manipulated into any way people want and people will believe or not believe those facts based on emotion or other beliefs. So, you know, I'm just kind of rambling on about it, but you know, it's, it's <laughs> these things in this book that make me think about what we're going
1: through now. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's, it's always good to kind of take that time to self-reflect a little bit and, and try and figure out if your immediate gut reaction to something is based on kind of a logical thinking through of things, or is it, based on emotion and i mean that's very true for all sides of any debate really and uh like you say your beliefs really will dictate where you go in that and it's interesting you bring up um we talked a little bit about emotions uh driving situations we've got another interesting situation brewing in the web of worlds that feels very familiar in a lot of ways to a lot of things that we see every day in in today's world. And that's the idea of fear and overriding fear, dictating our actions and dictating what we believe basically. So the government is afraid of what's outside of the world. And like we've said, they refuse to believe the findings of these scientists. They hear what they want to hear. And instead of overcoming that fear or utilizing it to a greater end, they instead intensify it. They stoke that fear to create more fear and more paranoia to distract from the real problem. And that's something that has been repeated many times in our own history, is this idea of creating a fearful population and stoking it because fearful people are more easily manipulated. And we definitely see that play out a bit in this novel.
0: The name of the novel is the face of the unknown. And that comes from the Corbinite maneuver episode. That's a line in there, but in a lot of ways the book could be renamed the fear of the unknown, because I feel like this book is really just about that is fear. Uh, and there's it on so many different levels throughout the story, uh, do we examine fear? And just like you were talking about the government is putting fear in the people and the people fear what could happen to them because of the, the disaster that's going on with these lightning storms on their planet. And the, and the DASIC, they, they were conquered by the Linic people years ago by giving they they were the, the Linic used a bioweapon against them and gave them a mutation that they actually shrunk and became weaker and they've kind of overcome, and they couldn't live much beyond their years. It was like, you know, like eight years or something, like an Akampa or something, I don't know. But anyway, they couldn't live very long. But they've kind of, some of them could mature to, you know, into a maturity or whatever, And and, but their their people are dying because of this mutation that happened years ago. So the Nasic are looking for the Linic Look to see what was done to them so that they could conquer the problem of the mutation so they can live on in their lives. But once some of these DESIC get to the planet, there's a fear of the Linux and the First Federation... Trying to conquer them again. So again, they react out of fear, not trying to reach out. After generations and generations and generations, these the generations of these people did this to each other. They're you know it's their sort of great 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 grandfathers, and now you know why not reach out and talk to one another and see if one will support the inner other through all these generations. But instead, fear comes up again. And and what I really liked a lot was Baylock and uh, Bailey, Lieutenant Bailey from that episode and that he brought Bailey on because Bailey was fearful and he made reactions based on fear and Baylock wanted to see could Riley conquer his fear and live beyond that and turn fear into a negative from a negative to a positive. And he was able to do that and, and Bailey started to learn to use less fear, but be more constructive with it. And because of that, Baylock said he learned from Bailey and is trying to teach that now to his own people.
1: Yeah, I, I absolutely love that. The problem at the root of all of this, whether it's the environmental problem or the problem with the DASIC and, and their genetic mutation those are very complicated issues. They're very intricate and layered. And the thing about people who are afraid is, you know, when you're at that level of fear and being controlled by it, you can't really deal with complicated problems. You want very simple, clear uh, objectives and goals. So for example, like that's why Hitler was able to take power in Germany, to rally the people around a scapegoat. He had a very clear answer. It's all of these people's fault, and we should hate them. They're the reason for all our problems. And I love this. There's this um, back and forth between Baylock and another, another member of the, the Triumvirate in the First Federation. And uh, he says to Baylock. It doesn't matter if it makes sense, Commander. It's what the people need to hear. Frightened people need clear, simple reassurances, not complicated truths. Balak looked him over with contempt, which is no doubt why you're so eager to make the people afraid. It makes them so much easier to control, especially when you don't have the truth on your side. And I just, I love that because it's so true. You know, you can't really deal with these complicated issues if all you're doing is running around. Completely terrified. And you brought up Bailey, and I absolutely love that because I'm a huge fan of character arcs. And I think Bailey has this beautiful arc. And in the Corbomite maneuver, we see the beginnings of where he's going and how he's going to change. But of course, at the end of the episode, the Enterprise flies off and we never hear from him again. But here we really see how that experience has changed him. And then what I absolutely love and I thought was brilliant was we get Bailey's mirror in, uh, I, I want to call him koost this uh, member of the Dasik, who starts out very fearful. He's captured by the First Federation. He shares a cell with Kirk at one point and and uh, tries to kill him. But he gets talked down and, and faces his fears rather than letting them control him. And at the end, he's named as a delegate to the First Federation. And I see his path taking much the same as Bailey's. He would never admit it. In fact, several times in the book he says, I fear nothing. But he, he and his entire people have been uh, governed by fear this whole time. And this is the turning point for them. And bringing these two people together to overcome that fear. And I I just thought that was beautiful.
0: Yeah. That's a great uh, point there. The parallel of those two characters. I hadn't thought about it that way, but that's definitely true. And you know, fear is sometimes fear prevents me from doing things. And I try to overcome that fear. Like, Hey, why don't you try podcasting? Oh, I don't know if I can do that. Still don't know if I can do it. No, I'm just kidding. But it's, you know, But, you know, you have to just overcome those fears and take chances. But then fear is also a good thing. It it makes you sometimes not do things that you shouldn't do. You know, it's like, you know, you're not – I'm not going to jump off a, off the house because oh, I have no fear anymore and then I kill myself. But <laughs> as I was reading this and thinking about fear and, and how that reflects on me in my daily life and and I want to overcome some fears so I can accomplish more things, I thought, well, you know – I have to have fear. And all of a sudden I went to Kirk in star Trek five when he's talking about pain, you know, I need my pain, you know, and I need my fear. Mm -hmm. And as much as I want to overcome fear, I need it. So I really liked again, how the book made me think about something even beyond the page and just thinking about fear in
1: general and how it relates to my life. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, yeah, fear does definitely have its place. I mean, it, it, it's an evolutionary thing that uh, that is very important i mean you can't just run blindly into the tall grass because you're going to get killed by that big snake there (laughs) (laughs) so you know fear is definitely a good thing but it's never a good thing to let it completely rule your life as i think a lot of the characters in this book and in my day-to-day life that i see and at points in my own life i think has happened and uh yeah, no, it's definitely something that should be mediated. And um, I think Christopher Bennett does a really good job of of getting that point across here. Kind of, speaking of emotions in general, I think we alluded to it earlier, but uh, there's, there's a really interesting through line in this story concerning Spock. So this book takes place at a very specific point in... Star Trek history. It's kind of in between the original series and going into the animated series. And one thing that I found really interesting that I never really thought of before was, uh, the third season of Star Trek has a lot of failings and a lot of interesting roads that it took. And one of them is in the character of Spock. You know, he had a lot of experiences in the third season that were a little out of character and I never really gave it much thought other than, well, it's the third season and you know, things kind of went off the rails a little bit. But another thing that I think Bennett does just brilliantly here is explain some of that. So in the cloud minders, for example, he's outright flirting with Droxine and we're not given any indication in that episode that it's anything other than the fact that she's kind of (laughs) hot and you know, I I love that uh, Bennett has Spock kind of reflecting on that in this and saying like, what's going on? Like something's going on with me. And he comes to some really interesting conclusions about uh, specifically what happened to him in a mock time and getting spurned by T'Pring and feeling that uh, he doesn't have something that's very important to Vulcans. He doesn't really have that to... Um, contribute to his society. And that's, you know, becoming a husband and uh, creating children. and Right, because that's really his fear. Int-
0: his fear is not having that
1: legacy. Yeah, exactly. And it ties in really nicely to that. Absolutely. And I thought that was just a really interesting place to take uh, this story and this character. Well, and not
0: only does that help to explain some of the odd behavior that we might attribute to Spock in that third season, but it also shows that he's trying to evaluate what is his ultimate goal? Where is he trying to go? I mean, is, does he even have a career in Starfleet? You know, what, what is his next thing? What is his future? Which of course leads us to the events that precede the motion picture. So it is a kind of a, a great bridge between the third season and the motion picture and the animated series, uh, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. So I really like that. And again, that's the great thing about these novels is like, you know, it, ch- it can change your perception and look at, at these episodes and these movies in a totally different way. And I just love, you know, it's not there to fix mistakes, but it does, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and it just yeah, enhances absolutely. stuff. It,
1: it's really great. I love that stuff. Yeah, and I mean it's it's kind of something that Christopher Bennett's really been known to do is to take things that were considered like continuity errors or mistakes and uh, really fixing them. I mean, his Department of Temporal Investigations that first novel was basically about rectifying all the inconsistencies in time travel. And I never really thought of this as an area that that needed that, but after having read this book, I'm like, oh man, that just that makes that all make sense. Kind of those. Parts of Spock's character in season three that you just kind of go la 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 <laughs> over. Oh, now they actually fit in this cohesive whole, and I, I love that. I thought that was great. Well, and the other thing I read in uh, Bennett's
0: blog is that his original intent was to build the story after the motion picture,
1: mm-hmm. in
0: the movie time frame, the movie era. Uh, But the editor suggested it take place during the original five-year mission because we're in the 50th anniversary of that show. And I think, of course, having not seen what this would have turned out in the movie area, but I think this works better in this five-year mission because these events that take place after the Corbinite Maneuver are just within about three years after those events, and it just it just feels right that it be closer to that episode, in my opinion, mm-hmm. and it gives us this opportunity to do what Bennett did with Spock. So I think this is really the right time frame for this story.
1: Yeah, I I would have to agree with that. I I generally enjoy movie era stories a little bit more, just because it's something a little bit different, but. I do definitely appreciate the editor's uh, reasoning for for putting it here. I mean, you know, the 50th anniversary, I I guess, you know, the five-year mission is what the average person would think of when they think of Star Trek. So that kind of makes sense. And like you say, it does give this opportunity for this really kind of unique point in Spock's life and to do something really different with it and really cast that whole era in a different light, which, uh, again, I just... I thought was really cool and other things like about this particular moment in Star Trek history, you know, there's a lot of really interesting little tie-ins that Bennett is able to make with this, you know, kind of end of the, not end of the five-year mission, end of the Star Trek television series and beginning of the animated series. Uh, You know, Chekhov is about to move on. Of course he wasn't in the animated series. He was replaced at navigation with, uh, by Eric's. And we get that kind of maybe not as much of it as I would have liked, actually. But we get a little bit of Chekhov, kind of thinking about you know what he wants to accomplish in his life and and his idea to kind of move on a little bit. And then little continuity touches that I thought were really cool, like Ann Norred from uh, the animated series. She was in the episode "The Survivor," I believe. Yep. Excellent. <laughs> I got my fact checker here. Uh, You know, and just little things like that and name dropping Carter Winston as her, uh, her missing fiance or husband. I'm not sure, but uh, it was really, it's really cool to, to bring in these parts of Trek continuity that are usually kind of ignored by the, the wider Trek universe.
0: Yeah. And I remember there was a brief, very brief mention about there being like a second lift on the bridge. It, mm, it was right. like I ha- almost had to, it like went by me at first So I was like wait 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 did I just read that oh yeah he does say you know there's a second entryway or something to that effect <laughs> which meant me went okay that that's the probably the other lift okay that's cool so yeah I was seeing how the animated series was kind of brought in and uh you know Eric's was going to join the team after Chekhov leaves and that's a nod to the the latter fire that came out earlier in the year, because we saw that Mm -hmm. transition take place there. So Yeah. yeah, it was, it, those little connections are just fun. If you're, if you follow all the Star Trek lore that's out there,
1: I was waiting for it as I was finishing just the last few pages of the book just today. And, uh, I, I, I'm i not sure if I'm thankful that he didn't do it or 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 wish that he did, but I was waiting for Kirk to look around the bridge and comment that, like, everybody seems a little bit more animated today or something <laughs> like that. I, I, I think I'm glad he didn't do that. But if I were writing this novel, The Temptation would have been so great. <laughs> oh,
0: my gosh. That's something I would say. I can't believe you went there. Exactly. This
1: is... This is why I don't write Star Trek novels. They just throw that right out. Or
0: maybe say Kirk's like, you know, well, you know, I have to get up early tomorrow. Saturday mornings just aren't going to be the same for a while.
1: Oh, that's good. That's good. (laughs) Should have uh, Aaron Harvey on to uh, talk about this one. (laughs) We should. We should read the logs. From the animated series, yeah. you
0: know what? There's just okay. Everybody, listeners, I'm just gonna let you know. Now that Dan and I are doing the show, we're like, oh, well, what do we read next? And the list is just getting longer and longer and longer. Oh, we want to do this. Let's read this. Listen, I mean, we're open
1: to everything. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna be reading books right up to the Vulcans land in 2063. <laughs> like, I mean, <laughs> we've yeah, we've got so much on the plate here. But yeah, so this novel in particular, um, the face of the unknown. If you were kind of going to kind of give your final thoughts and uh, what you would rate this one, what would you say?
0: Well, I enjoyed this probably more than I thought I would. I was excited to read the book, but I don't really know what... I, I don't think I really had any high expectations, but it really was a very good read. Uh, no pun intended to the Goodreads website. Uh, so I would say that I would give this four and a half out
1: of five lightning strikes. Ooh. And those are like continent sized lightning strikes. So that's, that's pretty, they can (laughs) disrupt a
0: whole world.
1: (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of with you on this. I, I, I don't think I, I wasn't expecting to enjoy it, but I don't think I was particularly excited about this book. Uh, but reading it, it was a lot of fun and a lot of really interesting things to say. And it really reminded me how much I loved the Corbomite Maneuver and Baylock and uh, the Fisarius and all of that stuff from that episode. So yeah, I had a really good time reading this book and with it tying into the third season in ways that I I hadn't thought of, I thought that was just kind of icing on the cake. I'm, I'm a continuity buff. I love that continuity stuff. So uh, that was all really great. And I think I would have to give this one... Probably four bowls of Tranya. Mmm. Let's drink up. (laughs) Oh, man. I need to get that sound effect and put it there. I should have prepared that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You've been practicing that
1: laugh, haven't you? (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) It went through my head every single time Balok laughed in this novel.
0: (laughs) Well, I really enjoyed talking about that book. And reading it was great too it just really enhances the corbonite maneuver episode for me and like i said as a kid that episode i saw that i was like what the heck i have no interest and now i'm into the episode and into the book it's just exciting and it,
1: i i love it did you have like the corbonite maneuver music going through it bum 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 bum
0: bum bum actually i did and it it when I heard it in my head, it was you doing what you just did.
1: Ah, oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> I almost had another battle. It's like,
0: o'clock. I can hear Dan doing the music. See, we're getting you close to singing for us. We're getting it there. Was,
1: I mean, that was that was pretty close.
0: <laughs> your one,
1: but it was just a little too sharp, but everything else was perfect. It's, it's kind of pitchy, kind of pitchy. <laughs> well, if you want to uh, continue to hear me almost sing, or maybe you don't and uh, want to make that clear. Just write uh, in and complain.
0: No, I'm sorry.
1: Yeah, <laughs> you can absolutely do that. Um, but one way you can get uh, literary treks coming to you and all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's patreo dot com slash trekfm, You'll find our current goals and different milestone contribution levels, along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trackfm. We'd like to thank our associate producers, Ken Tripp, Brandon Shay Matula, and Norman Lau for their support of the network and for being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. Well, Bruce, when you're not creating a terrifying Mr. Hyde doppelganger puppet of yourself to sit across from me and scare me while we do these podcasts, where can we find you?
0: Well, you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. And uh, you can also find me in our Babel conference talking about Star Trek and occasionally on the 602 Club with Matthew Rushing. I'm on there every once in a while talking about Star Wars or some other things. And we have like Supergirl coming up. I'll be probably on there talking about that. And also, uh, I do like to talk Star Wars on the podcast called The Star Wars Report. So check that out. And Dan, when you're not looking around at other people and wondering why they're animated, where can people
1: find you? <laughs> well, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtratz, That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can find me on YouTube. I've got a channel on there at youtube.com slash Productions. Uh, you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Productions. And of course, kicking around the Babel Conference, posting about all things Star Trek. Well, thank you everyone for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.